0: Today is November 3rd, 2016, and my guest is Thomas Leonard. Tim Leonard is an historian of economics specializing in the American Gilded Age and Progressive Era and a research scholar in the Council of the Humanities at Princeton University, where he's also a lecturer in the Department of Economics. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Illiberal Reformers, Race, Eugenics, and American Economics in the Progressive Era. Tim, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: Thanks, Russ. It's great to be with you.
0: Uh, your book is fascinating, uh, a little bit alarming, uh, way too educational. I learned a little bit too much about uh, the roots of um, economist attitudes in at the early part of the 20th century and the late part of the 19th. But let's start with the progressive era itself. How would you define uh, the progressive movement and the progressive era?
1: Well, one way to think about it, Russ, is as a um – a set, a rather motley set of political and social reform movements that are responding to profoundly changed conditions, economic conditions and social conditions uh, at the end of the 19th century, particularly um, the 1890s. Uh, the 1890s were kind of, um, it's hard hard to recall in, in historical retrospect, but a profoundly uh, depressing and, and difficult era. There was a, a, a Great Depression, the, the worst depression in U.S. history with the exception of the Great Depression in the 30s. There was a double-dip uh, depression triggered, as, as is often so often the case, by a financial crisis. There was, in, in addition, um, profoundly uh, rapid, uh, vertiginous, even economic growth going on at the same time. Sounds like a paradox, but uh, despite the uh, rather amazing ups and downs of the economy, over a generation or so, post-Civil War, uh, the U.S. economy is quintupling in size, 1870 to turn of the century. And with that brought some, some amazing social changes, lots of immigration, folks to work in the factories and the shops and the mines, urbanization, the rise of the American city, and along with all of that, the rise of the United States uh, as, as, as a single nation rather than a collection of states, and as uh, eventually a global power. So it's a time of enormous change, and, and we can think about the progressive era as a, as, as a collection of, resp- of reform movements trying to cope, trying to address and, and remedy those, those many and profound changes at, at the end of the 19th century.
0: And part of it involved an increased role for the state, for the government, and a concept, which we still use today, the administrative state. So talk about the role that played, as well as the role of expertise, which is, um, to me, an important piece of the, of this story.
1: Right. Um, well, everybody knows, at least everyone who has, has read their high school version of, of American history— uh, that the progressive period, and here we can, we can say roughly the first couple decades of the 20th century, or if you want to be more precise, sort of maybe through the end of the First World War, 1918, it is a moment when, when the state, uh, and particularly the federal government, importantly the federal government, not exclusively, but for the first time the federal government, uh, takes a, a much larger role in, in economic life uh, especially. Um, but it 's not merely the case as, as it 's sometimes represented that the progressives quote brought in the state they certainly enlarged uh, uh, the state and they at all levels um, particularly with respect to economic relations, but they also changed the nature of the state so we sometimes uh, read in, in in popular accounts the idea of you know the state being big or small, having big government or limited government, but in fact, what the progressives advocated and, and ultimately succeeded in in obtaining through their activism and 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 uh, through their intellectual uh, persuasion was was what they called the administrative or the regulatory state, which was which was a new beast in 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 American um, economic and and political life. The administrative state. Uh, surveils economic life, it investigates economic life, gathering data, uh, it regulates economic life, and it performs all these functions, the progressives uh, argued, in a kind of scientific way. Um, It's well to remember that a a big part of the progressive movement was, was of course, about political reform as well as about economic reform. American politics um, in the Gilded Age was notoriously venal and corrupt and dominated by parties. So the progressives not only wanted to expand government, they they wanted to change government altogether. So the administrative state serves a very interesting and, and crucial role in, in the evolution of American government-economy relations.
0: And that all sounds... I don't have to agree with it myself, <laughs> uh, but that all sounds well intentioned and what we would call a today liberal. Why do you call the, these reformers illiberal? Meaning, not liberal. What was illiberal about their views and their agenda?
1: Two ways to think about this, Russ. Um, the first is. The term liberal, it's, it, it's, it's an old word in English, but it's a relatively new word in, in, in the political lexicon. So after the American Civil War, say in the 1870s, if you um, described a person as, as a liberal, what that meant is the person would be committed to individual freedom and to those institutions that were thought necessary for maintaining individual rights against the state. So, for example, a a relatively free market economy and um, laws that protect individual rights uh, against the state. Today we use the term classical liberal to describe that view because the progressives gave the term, at least in the United States, an entirely different meaning. Um, The progressives viewed this 19th century classical liberalism um, as inefficient, as wasteful, as corrupt. And um, so they certainly were reformers, but they weren't liberals. And in fact, what they were trying to do was to dismantle 19th century classical liberalism in the name of health, welfare, and and mores. Um, They basically saw uh, individual liberties, which in the American context is, are, are sort of very expressly and famously enshrined in, in, in the Constitutional Bill of Rights. They saw those liberties as basically archaic impediments to their reform project of, of making uh, uh, you know, the United States healthier and, and, and improving welfare and morals, too. So that's the first sense in which they're illiberal is, is they, that there's, there's not a lot of respect for individual rights, particularly in, in, in the economic context. The second sense, the additional sense in which I'd say the progressives were illiberal, is, um, refers to the, the original sense of the term Russ. So when we said someone was liberal uh, before it became a political term, well, what we meant is that they were open-minded or tolerant, uh, free from prejudice and, and bigotry. Um, And as as you know, um, uh, it turns out that a very – a shockingly high percentage of the progressives, uh, including the progressive economists, uh, were anything but liberal in that traditional sense. They were closed-minded. They were intolerant, and and they were bigoted. In fact, they –
0: They're racist in ways that even – I'm a fairly cynical person from time to time, and I was uh, shocked – by the attitudes of the economists of the day, uh, by Woodrow Wilson, a famous progressive, um, Eugene Debs, a famous socialist. And I'm going to read some quotes later because saying that they were racist or intolerant doesn't really do justice to their attitudes uh, without quoting their own words, uh, which, I, which I will do later. It's, it's kind of shocking.
1: It, it is shocking, and, and, and it shocked me when I first came across these passages piecemeal, uh, working on uh, a, a related but uh, smaller project many years ago. I sort of was working uh, many years ago on a history of minimum wages, and I, I, I saw these absolutely appalling, hateful uh, discussions of, of, of workers from Asia or, or immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, um, African Americans, uh, the disabled um, and filed that away thinking, hmm, there may be a story here and, and it turns out there is a story. One of the things that's most most shocking is not just sort of the, 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 the hateful views that they had of of immigrants and, and, and what they called defectives and African Americans. Um but the the, the scope of, of, of that sort of racism and, and and bigotry. Almost no one almost no one, including even White Anglo-Saxon Protestant men was uh, immune from being characterized as hereditary inferiors.
0: And part of this is what is known as eugenics. So talk about what eugenics are, how it got tangled up with Darwinism and then filtered through those um, lenses, got into public policy in the, among economists.
1: Sure. Well, we we have to be a little careful, uh, as ever, Russ, because eugenics is uh, and remains today a a dirty word, um, precisely because of the the horrors in in Central Europe in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, But the progressive era is is roughly a generation before, and it had a very different meaning uh, then than it it does now. Eugenics, at the time, uh, was the social control of human heredity. And... Many progressive economists and, and and their reform allies saw eugenics um, as uh, as among the most fundamental of reforms that the, that the state could carry out what 's in some sense what 's more important than what would today we would call the human genome so in their view, um, eugenics, which comes in two flavors, negative eugenics, which is preventing children from the unfit, and positive eugenics, which is promoting uh, more children from the fit, uh, was was at the core of any sensible social and, and economic policy. Its relation to Darwinism is very complicated, uh, Russ, as you know. Um, each one requires a chapter in the book to, to sort some of the, these things out. Um, a Darwinian is someone who looks at uh, outcomes and in, in, the, in the jargon of social Darwinism, um, says that the, the, those who survive are fittest in some sense. The uh, eugenicist is making the opposite claim. The eugenicist is worried that those who are uh, surviving, who are outbreeding their hereditary betters, uh, need to be controlled. Um, so in, in some sense, though, they... They, they both are species, if you like, of evolutionary thought applied to social and economic problems. Uh, eugenics starts with a very different premise, which is the fittest are not surviving. So eugenics judges uh, the races that are fitter ex-ante, and that therefore the state must intervene to ensure um, that that is stopped, that the hereditary inferiors, the immigrants, Catholics and Jews from Southern and Eastern europe asians uh, African Americans, and the disabled um, not be permitted to perpetuate their kind or at least not to outbreed uh, their biological betters
0: and I want to talk about the concept of the state that got promoted at this time, and it it mm-hmm. 's a little bit frightening to me because it it 's the exact same discussion that we have today um, it 's come up many times on this program, and when I Critique what turns out to be I didn't realize this, what turns out to be the progressive attitude, uh, people get very mad at me and write angry uh, things, but I, I want to get quote a little passage here. Oh. you say quote, The progressives developed elaborate, often anthropomorphic depictions of society as an organism. Henry Carter Adams said the socialist organism had a quote conscious purpose. Political journalist Herbert Crowley conceived of the American nation as, quote, an enlarged individual. Ross described society as, quote, a living thing actuated like all the higher creatures by the instinct for self preservation. The state, Richard T. Eli declared, was, quote, a moral person. Uh, end of quote, and uh, end of the passage from the book. These are all um, v- a very well respected economists sociologists of the day and they saw the state as a, as a as a distinct thing from the people who made it up society as right. a distinct thing and right. of course government and politics were just the vehicle by which that entity acted somehow in our interest um this, I call it a romance. Um, it's, a, I think, a dangerous romance. And many of my listeners, I, I apologize to you out there. I know you like that idea. What I'd like to hear from you, Tim, is where did that idea come from? It, it, was, it was not in American discourse, I don't think, uh, or other discourse until then. It, it seems like it was created around then.
1: Well, it's a, it, it's a really deep question, Russ, in, in intellectual history, and and let me break it down as, as best I can in, in short scope in our, in our conversation. Um, several things are going on at the same time. I, I, I will say that you're right to identify this as, as a, a very kind of crucial watershed in um, American intellectual thought. It's, it, it, it's a striking intellectual change that happens beginning in the late 19th century, this uh, rejection of the classically liberal tradition, which makes the individual prior to the state, right? The indiv- for example, the social contract tradition, which says that individuals um, pre-exist um, the state and they create it for their, for their purposes and, and presumably can disband it if, if it doesn't do what those individuals want. The progressives, of course, as you suggest rightly, come at it from the other end of the telescope. They think of the state as prior to the individual, and they do use, as as you said in the quote, uh, a very uh, biological and sometimes anthropomorphic characterization of the state. Um, Ely, for one, and, and by the way, th- those names may not be familiar to your economist or other listeners. Th- these are the leading lights of American social science.
0: There's still a prize, yeah. I think, named after Ely for the, in the there American is. Economic is there Association.
1: Bill- it, there are, and if you go to any university where progressives were uh, part of the founding, with, like Wisconsin or Michigan or Columbia or, or Wharton, you'll find buildings and programs and prizes named after all these men. And they're not, and they're not just leaders of the profession, the founders of American social science. They were also uh, influential public intellectuals. Uh, they, you know, part of the progressive creed, of course, is is not merely to um, hole up in the library and write treatises. They were all public intellectuals. They were all writing op-ed pieces for the newspapers and the religious periodicals. Ely was on the Chautauqua summer lecture circuit. Uh, they, they were public intellectuals, as well as leading social scientists. So back to this idea of the social organism, um, a bunch of things are, are going on at, at, at the same time. Um, the first is that all of the progressives, all of the leading progressive economists and, and many of their um, um, activist confrères, uh, did their graduate work in uh, in Germany, in the late 1870s and early 1880s, you really couldn't get a PhD in in the United States. You had you had to go to Germany, and they studied at the feet of uh, their historicist uh, German professors, who they they greatly admired. and And this idea of the state as as an organic thing, as a whole distinct from its component parts, and indeed, you know, in some sense superior to its component parts, was was partly the product of of their Graduate training in the kind of German historical school view, um, and, and it also dovetails nicely with, with evolution as well, right? It, it, if the nation is an organism, it's greater than the sum of the individuals that it comprises. Uh, a second influence, uh, Russ, is is Darwinism. Darwinism, with its kind of material uh, explanation for evolution, for human evolution, seems to imply that the idea of having inalienable natural rights invested in you by a creator, the language that you find in, in the Declaration of Independence, Darwin seems to suggest, well that's that's just kind of a nice fiction. A third a third influence on this crucial change in, in the way that uh, Am- Americans see the relationship between individuals in the state, um, which we haven't touched on yet, is that, is that many of these progressives, and certainly the intellectual leaders among them, were evangelicals. They, they grew up in evangelical homes. They were the sons of uh, and daughters of, of ministers and missionaries. And uh, they preached what was known at the time as a social gospel. This, this is a move of American Protestantism away from the idea that um, the individual must, must be saved to the idea uh, of a more collective project of redeeming the entire country, of redeeming uh, America, which is the chapter of, title of one of my early chapters. And lastly, I, I would cite, uh, fourth, um, there's a kind of native uh American uh discourse, uh, pragmatism, capital P pragmatism, uh which we associate with, with John Dewey and others, Charles Peirce, which, which seems to suggest that you know, just about any departure from previous absolutes uh is is okay, uh pro- provided it, it you know, it, it proves useful uh for promoting uh good things like welfare and and health and uh, higher wages and more values and and all the rest of it.
0: well, I'm always excited when someone other than me mentions Charles Peirce on my <laughs> I think this is the first time um, excellent i've I've mentioned in the past I think that I had a a philosophy professor Richard Smythe who was a purse uh, specialist and uh, after I studied it at his feet at University of North Carolina was able to years later. Talk to him about the relationship between Peirce and Hayek's ideas, where Hayek was very interested in the evolutionary, practical um, idea that, that – ideas that prove their worth should be respected even if you didn't understand why they made sense. Um, there's a certain skepticism about the power of human reason in Peirce's work and in Hayek's that I, I'm very fond of. But I, I want to quote another short passage um, – Related to this point about the organism, you write: Progressive economists, notably Edwin R. A. Seligman, played a pivotal role in laying the intellectual foundations for the U.S. income tax. Taxes, they said, were not payment for government services. Seligman Seligman argued that we pay taxes, quote, simply because the state is a part of us. Close quote. The taxpayer's duty to the state was no different than the duty to oneself and one's family. By implication, taxes should vary with ability to pay. And I think that, because end of the passage from your book, I think that attitude, again, is still very common among uh, many Americans today and elsewhere around the world, that somehow supporting the state is just like supporting yourself. This idea that we, through the state, do things, that there are things the state does that benefits us. And I find that uh, difficult because, in fact, almost everything the state does benefits some of us and hurts some of us, and I feel that many people take advantage of that uh, romance to push things for their own self-interest, claiming they're good for all of us when, in fact, they're good for them and not for us, the rest of us. So I I was just very struck by how common that uh, attitude was then.
1: Well, it's a great example, Russ, of of the sort of uh, organicist view of the state um, put into um, concrete economic action, um, and it, you know, in when the Constitution was amended in 1913 to pass the income tax, uh, economists uh, were absolutely today we'd call them public finance economists were, were at the forefront of um, of that movement to to move um, the United States government away from funding itself with tariff revenues and with taxes on tobacco and alcohol and to instead tax income. It, it, is, uh, it is a watershed moment because if you're going to have uh, an administrative state, it needs to be funded. And an income tax is a much better, much more reliable way of funding um, a, a large institution of the sort that the progressives imagined when they were drawing up the blueprints for the administrative state.
0: So. Well, I'm going to quote um, Irving Fisher, who I used to like until I read your book. Huh? <laughs> I, I used to think Irving Fisher was just – I mean he's a wonderful writer. He had a lot of uh, good ideas about interest rates and their relationship to inflation, which I mm-hmm. found useful thinking about these things. Uh, wrote, again you – know, 19, early part of the 20th century and uh, famously lost money during the Great Depression un, unprepared for that event. Always entertaining for non-economists to point those things out. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, uh, his social attitudes were rather unpleasant. Uh, again, a quote from the book, social science experts gave elitism a new form and rationale in the progressive area, one expanded on by Irving Fisher. The United States had abandoned laissez-faire, Fisher said, out of recognition that, quote, the world consists of two classes, the educated and the ignorant, and it is essential for progress that the former should be allowed to dominate the latter. Uh, close quote from Fisher in close of the passage from her book. And that – there are many other things, Fisher said, that, that were worse than that. But I wanted to use that uh, example – I mean it's a perfect example of the justification for why experts should be in charge to run other people's lives – And I want to ask you, that attitude, of course, remains today in many forms among economists and others uh, in power. How about you – do you attribute simply to the economist's desire to have more power? Uh, So there's many, many quotes in the book from economists justifying an expanded role for the state, but it's an expanded role for themselves. So it's a kind of awkward form of um, public intellectualism, and it remains so to me to this day.
1: Uh, I, I think that's that's well put, Russ. Um, sometimes, if you, if you step back from from the scholarly uh, trees and and look at the whole forest, it, one of the things that's most shocking, or at least striking, in, you know, a hundred years on, is that um, in proposing to fundamentally um, change uh, the U.S. state and and its politics. And to fundamentally uh, remake its economic life, um, the progressive economists and and their reform allies uh, in other institutions its not just a bunch of academics. Um, It's also progressives who are working in settlement houses and who are investigatory journalists or who are working in in other community groups or or in government. Um, Their best idea for spearheading all those reforms is, uh, well... uh, why don't we install me and my friends, um, to, put it, to put it baldly. And, you know, it, it is this, um, I, I don't think progressives today are, are, are quite as egregious because, you know, experience has taught that this kind of heroic view of expertise, simultaneously heroic and self-serving, is, is sometimes misplaced. There, there is this very um, quintessentially American combination Of uh, naivete on the one hand, Um, you know, Fisher was brilliant, uh, but but the economists really didn't uh, know what they claimed to know, in in arguing that they should be running an administrative state. And it it was also incredibly arrogant at at the same time, right? Naive
0: and arrogant. I don't think things have changed at all. Uh, (laughs) I'm serious. I'm not being. I'm not being. um, I'm not trying to be cute here. I I think the. Thrust, general thrust of um, welfare economics, in uh, which is, which means something very uh, specific in economic theory. Not, it's not the study of of payments to poor people. It's the study of well being, human well being. I find um, depressingly narrow for starters, overly confident, and I think incredibly self serving to place us as the engineers of the betterment of those who don't understand the world as well as we do is the claim, and I. I find that um I find it depressing.
1: Well, there's this interesting moment uh, Russ that that happens uh at, at the end of the first uh World War. Um and and it's a very awkward moment for for the progressives and and for the progressive economists in in particular. Um and it's this uh the the, the economics that they've been preaching since their graduate school days for a generation was a German style economics, one modified to American condition, but, but, but German in, in spirit. Um, And so too was, was their, their model of the administrative state, how economic policy would be put into practice. And and so too, the idea of the expert economist as the, as the keystone, the key figure uh, in the administrative state, all of these ideas uh, they borrowed uh, from uh, Germany. And of course, Germany uh, became a dirty word in, in American discourse at all levels um, during World War uh, I. It, even, even beer was vilified for its German connections. So having a German economics and a German view of expertise and, and the Germans, Germany as the model for the world in designing a scientific, rational, um, expert, administrative state was, was, was politically completely untenable. But, but what happened, um, and you can see this in Fisher's presidential address, um, just, just a month or so after hostilities have, en- have ended, his presidential address to the AEA meetings, economists the American, in the service of the state, American, the American, American a- Economic Association. Um, he says, yes, uh, well, uh, we, we, were, we were wrong about Germany, We're not wrong about the administrative state. We're not wrong about the necessity of having the experts in charge. Um, What did change, I think, uh, one important change uh, that takes place after the the books period in in the 20s, um, economics becomes a little more technocratic, right? So we we evolved towards a view where where experts uh, are given a a, a goal, a set of goals by some political process and then decide the best route uh, to get to that goal, um, which is a bit different from the more heroic progressive era concept, which is experts not only tell you how to get from A to B. They tell you what your goal should be in the first place, like preachers.
0: So I, I can't help – this is not in your book, but I can't help but remark, and and I'm going to defend the progressives now, which is not easy for me, but I'm, I'm going to make a go. Um, so there's this disillusionment or – a little bit of soul-searching after World War I because Germany had, was blamed, correctly or not, for the conflict. And, of course, Germany, it's always important to remember to, that Germany, the, this militaristic uh, authoritarian state, was the uh, first state to have serious welfare, uh, traditional welfare activities such as Social Security, that's right. And other things. And, and so, OK, so they they realized, ooh, well, we got to drop. We got to get rid of part of that or we had to concede that part of this was was tainted. Then, of course, World War Two and the Holocaust ends the um, any use of eugenics and race based um, thinking among liberals uh, for the next 75 years. And can't one argue that okay so progressivism has these hideous racist and we're going to I'm going to give some more quotes in a little bit that I mean they we're not exaggerating here hideous racist origins uh they had an intolerant and horrible set of attitudes toward women uh certain nationalities jews um certain again races and yet they did all this other good stuff so okay so they had some bad ideas they get rid of those, and now they just have the good part. What do you say to that? And 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 more importantly, why should we care? I mean, this is a fascinating book, but okay, so modern progressives have bad ancestors. Is there is that a big deal?
1: Um, I have to say, Russ, I'm always skeptical of the argument, this time it's different. Um, as you know from reading the book, um, one of the main – uh, arguments offered in support of minimum wages during the teens, a campaign led by uh, progressive activists and progressive economists, was that if, if you fixed a, a, what we call, today call a binding minimum wage, you would uh, disemploy idle um, inferior workers. The idea was that productivity, we'd say today, was connected uh, with some metric of biological inferiority. So if you set a minimum wage, high enough, you'd you'd make sure that the Jews and Catholics and Orthodox Christians from Southern and Eastern Europe were kept out, that the Asians who were vilified as coolies were kept out, and and that those um, parasites already in the labor force who couldn't um, be productive enough to justify uh, a properly set minimum uh, would be idled and could be dealt with uh, appropriately. So that's an example of, of the way that progressives harnessed eugenic thinking in defense of, of something you know, as anodyne uh, as, as a minimum wage. The idea, it was not, not merely uh, raising wages, but it was also performing this incredibly important and valuable eugenic uh, social service. Um,
0: but now it's not. Now no one, no one puts forward a minimum wage now to, as a racist. They're just trying to help poor people.
1: Well, I think that's certainly how the rhetoric goes. There's, there's two parts to this. We, if we were giving the textbook version, Russ, we'd, we'd talk about the, the scientific or positive claims and, and then the normative claims. What's interesting in retrospect is that the, the, the original progressives, unlike their namesakes today, saw uh, you know, potential job loss a, as, as, a, as a feature, not as a bug, right? <laughs> Whereas today it's the other way around. Um, Folks who are honest about say a $15 minimum will acknowledge that at least at that level we start to we, we start to lose jobs and/or and, and hours um, and the irony of course is that we see this uh, if we see it correctly today as, as, as a cost of, of, of minimum wage set too high rather than a benefit which was how the original progressives saw it um, and, and and I must say I, 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 I'm very sympathetic to your Position, at least as you sketched it, we we can't. It, it's entirely possible to be a proponent of the minimum wage in the 21st century without subscribing to the hateful views of your namesake's ancestors. That, that's quite right. But I think what we need to do, though, is to uh, step back from the the sensational aspects uh, of eugenics and, and racism, and and look. Uh, at um, the very idea of an administrative state and, and expertise in, in the first place. So I quite agree that 21st century progressives, those who call themselves progressive in the American political context today, um, do not, and thank goodness, share the views of their intellectual namesakes. They, and, and that's all for the good. But I, I, I do think, though, that a couple of notions and we're not talking here about racism or eugenics, uh, have carried over uh, from a century ago. Uh, And and here's what they are. One we've touched on, and and that's this idea that uh, I think if you really sat down over a glass of wine with a thoughtful progressive, um, you'd find that they still hold to progressivism's core faith, is that, you know, if smart, well intended people are put in charge, the best and the brightest, then progress, economic progress, social progress will inevitably follow. I think that attitude is not nearly as arrogant or, or heroic necessarily, but that fundamental faith remains. And the second thing I think that remains, uh, connecting 21st century progressives to, to their namesakes of a century ago, is this idea that free markets are intrinsically, intrinsically, not in practice, but uh, in in their very design, their nature, uh, unjust and wasteful. And that means that free markets require, goes the argument, um, the visible hand of a vigorous activist state that's empowered to investigate and regulate.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're right. I don't think – I know where in the book do you claim that there's something wrong with being in favor of the minimum wage today because it has racist roots or whatever um that's not that's not the theme of your book uh, mm-hmm. at all, but I do think i do think, and I think you're exactly right that what has remained um which sounds benign, I find dangerous, which is this idea that certain people know better about how to live or what other people how other people should live uh we certainly see that in the behavioral economics um sphere to some extent and we see it we see it elsewhere. I want to come back to I want to come back to the minimum Audrey. wage. Um we're we talking about that in some length and not just the minimum wage, but the whole idea of the labor force and how policy should be toward it. But I want to don't want to miss the chance to to discuss uh, Woodrow Wilson for a minute and then we'll use him as our segue to the minimum wage. You know, Woodrow Wilson uh you know I thought the U.S. intervention in World War I was a terrible mistake. Uh, but all and certainly the Versailles Treaty, which Wilson championed um, and influenced, it appears was also a, a terrible mistake. But my perception: of Wilson was he was a, had been a professor at Princeton, and he was an idealist. That that's my that's my uh, view of him. Until I read your book, which is you know the road to hell is paved with good intentions. He meant well. He tried. To, to do well in, in entering World War I, he tried to do well in, in emphasizing self-determination and, and the Versailles Treaty's propon- uh, different components. But I got a different perspective on him after reading your book, and here's a quote from the book. Professor Woodrow Wilson, this is before he's president, was at uh, Princeton, I assume. Professor Woodrow Wilson told his Atlantic Monthly readers that the freed slaves and their descendants were unprepared for freedom – The freedmen were, quote, unpracticed in liberty, unschooled in self-control, never sobered by the discipline of self-support, never established any habit of prudence, insolent and aggressive, sick of work, covetous of pleasure. End of quote from Wilson. You continue. Jim Crow was needed, Wilson said, because without it. Black Americans, quote, were a danger to themselves as well as to those whom they had once served, close quote. When President Wilson arrived in Washington, his administration resegregated the federal government, hounding from office large numbers of black federal employees. Um, it's fascinating to me that this aspect of Wilson, which is absolutely horrific, is not. Widely known? I don't think it is. Am I wrong? And why isn't it widely known? If I'm right,
1: um, well, it, it's known among scholars, Russ, but I, I don't think it's it, it's widely known among the uh, uh, among the public. Um, it is true. You, you may know uh, that there was a controversy here. On um, I'm, I'm sitting in uh, at Princeton University. There was there, there was a um, a kerfuffle uh, last year when some student activists occupied the president's office and, and made a set of demands uh, for, uh, for change. Uh, one of those was that uh, Wilson's name be removed from the School of Public and International Affairs, right. which is where I'm sitting right now, and, and that his name also be removed from Wilson College, which is one of the residential colleges here, because uh, he was a racist. And, um, you know, Princeton's uh, university, so it responded by convening a committee of scholars and it solicited opinions from various scholars outside, outside the university and, and made a decision. And the upshot is there, uh, nothing is happening, though they are going to uh, perhaps as a, as a token take down a mural of Woodrow Wilson in, in Wilson College. But, but the name will remain. Maybe people and, think
0: it's the sporting goods company you know, if, <laughs> if
1: they take down the mural. Maybe so. He is, in fact, holding a baseball. Uh, yeah, throwing out the uh, opening day pitch. So I, I, I have to say, you know, uh, part of me was, uh, was proud of those students in, in the sense that, that they, had, they, they had learned some of their history. And they knew uh, that, that Wilson's uh, past, uh, his record on racism as, as a defender of Jim Crow, And and Jim Crow, in this context, means effectively annulling the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. He he, he advocated that. But I I, I would want um, to—I would have gone uh, further. Um, And that's what this passage is so important about, uh, Russ. It's it's not merely uh, the the fact that Wilson was a racist. Lots of people had uh, race prejudice at the time. that was widespread. I think, I think what we, we want to uh, draw, uh, it, it's helpful. History helps us to draw a distinction between people who had uh, arguably unpleasant views, and racism is certainly uh, unpleasant, uh, and, and those who acted upon those views in, in a way that harmed others. Um, and, and third, those who acted upon those views using the coercive power of the state to harm others. Remember, you know, Wilson is elected... In in 1912, okay, this is this is more. This is 50 years later, after Appomattox, and and the the, the federal the federal workforce is uh, the the beating economic heart of the black bourgeoisie in in Washington D.C. It's it's a source of pride. It's a source of in- income. It's a source of of social standing. It's the only place in in. Uh, America, in America where a black man can give orders to a white man and have them carried out without any sort of retaliation or violence. And Wilson, um, who won the election mostly by accident, let's remember, um, he, he won the election because Teddy Roosevelt ran as a progressive, capital P progressive, splitting the Republican vote. Wilson got majorities, popular majorities only in the states of the Confederacy. And his henchmen, McAdoo and others, proceeded to desegregate, or rather to resegregate, um, the federal workforce. It was a devastating blow. That's not just racism. That's racism acted upon. That's racism enacted using the coercive power of the state, which is, is most sinister of all.
0: So I'm going to read another long passage. I apologize to listeners who don't like to be read to. Um, if all goes as planned, we uh, I interviewed Doug LaMobbe in last week's episode. Uh, so we talked about reading out loud to folks. So I, mm-hmm. I know some people don't like it, but I want to read this passage because I think it is – it's a great example of what we've been talking about. And I think some listeners might think I've been exaggerating about the attitudes of the day among uh, mm-hmm. economists and, and leading social scientists and I, this will lead us into a conversation of of what you call the menace of the unemployable this idea right. that immigrants uh and non anglo saxon non white workers uh were bad for the country uh and it has a lot of echoes of today's world where we're talking about how to deal with the fact that some workers may not be employable may be put out of work by technology so this is again a, a very long um, excerpt, but I think it's important and I want to give people the flavor of the book and then I want to, we'll talk about it. Let's hear it. The term, yeah, I know As an author. people, I love when people say, do you mind if I read a you have passage? Or <laughs> oh, music to <laughs> so my let's ears. Hear it. Yeah, here we go. Uh, <clears throat> the term unemployable, popularized by Sidney and Beatrice Webb, was a misnomer for many of the unemployable were in fact employed and others desperately wanted to be. The Webb's used the term to describe people incapable of work as well as those who could work but who accepted wages below a standard reformers judged acceptable. The latter group posed the threat. University of Chicago sociologist Charles Henderson put it plainly. The unemployable were those who, quote, bid low against competent and self-supporting men who are trying to maintain or raise their standard of living, and they can do this just because they are irresponsible and partly parasitic. By parasite, Henderson meant that the unemployable worker earned less than was required to support him or herself, creating a shortfall that had to be met by other members of the worker's household or by public, private or public charity. Mm-hmm. Henderson borrowed parasite from Sidney and Beatrice Webb's industrial democracy, which was influential among American labor reformers. The Webb's affixed the term to sweatshop industries that paid wages below a living wage and to the workers who accepted these wages. Since parasites – and I'm skipping ahead a little bit – since parasites, by assumption, could not pay their own way, their economic competition served only to drag down the wages of their betters. Letting the unemployable work was thus socially destructive, so went the argument. They should be removed from the workforce, kept at home, segregated in rural labor colonies, or placed in institutions. Then you go on to write – and I'm going to now indict, uh, with your words, Woodrow Wilson again and Richard Ely, prominent uh, economists of the day – the low standard of undercutting of wages, part of the theory, got to start with the violent activism of white Americans against Chinese immigrant workers. The title of a pamphlet published by the American Federation of Labor trenchantly captured the heart of the claim. Quote, the name of the pamphlet Meat versus Rice American Manhood Against Asiatic Coolism, which shall survive. If wages were determined by living standards rather than by productivity, then the meat-eating Anglo-Saxon could not compete with the Chinese worker accustomed to rice. Professor Woodrow Wilson, in his popular History of the American People, proffered the same theory of low-standard races undercutting American wages, adding a fillip of racism to cement the notion that race explained the low standards. White laborers, unable to, quote, live upon a handful of rice for a pittance, could not compete with the Chinese who with their yellow skin and strange debasing habits of life seem to them hardly fellow men at all, but evil spirits rather. And now I'm going to quote where you talk about Richard Ely, and this is just so depressing. The fullest unfolding of our national faculties, Ely asserted, required, quote, the exclusion of discordant elements, like, for example, the Chinese. Ely assumed that a unified American nation required racial homogeneity. As for South Asians, Ely proposed... That famine relief efforts in India should be suspended. Why not, Ely ventured, quote, let the famine continue for the sake of race improvement. And the quote goes on to talk about anti-Semitism from John Commons. Is it John Commons? Is that correct? John R. Commons. Yeah. Who was what was who was John R. Commons?
1: John R. Comets was uh, the leading uh, labor historian and economist of the day. Um, there's a building named for him still at Wisconsin. He was a colleague of Richard T. Ely and Edward A. Ross's, uh, founders of um, Wisconsin social science and also key leaders in what's known as the Wisconsin idea, this sort of prototype of the administrative state uh, first, first built in Wisconsin. So this
0: idea – that certain races, nationalities, et cetera, would drag down the wages of Native Americans, um, mm-hmm. is native-born Americans, is tragically still in our discourse today. Uh, but in its day, in, in the progressive era, this idea that somehow um, – uh, a Chinese worker, because of his desire for rice, would be willing to work for a lower wage than a meat-eating Anglo-Saxon. I just – I can't tell you how disturbing that, that, that idea is to me. And again, I'm, I'm not naive. I, like you said, we understand that people of that era were – didn't have the same attitudes we have. But to use that as a justification for keeping them out of the workforce is um, – it's so so sad.
1: Yeah, uh, viewed from today, it's pretty ugly stuff, uh, Russ. And um, so, so, so some of these uh, passages that you, that that you've read aloud uh, were were hard for me to write. Um, but for the most part, uh, I, I, I'm these quotes are, um, if you like, letting letting the the, the men who said them uh, hang themselves. Um, it doesn't require any further indictment than to see what sorts of arguments that that they made. Um, you know, one thing that it turns out that the Chinese play a really key role in, in the American anti-immigration movement. The, the, the Chinese were the first race, um, using the terminology of the day, to to be legally excluded from the United States on racial grounds because they were uh, Chinese. Now, the Chinese Exclusion Act dates to 1882. And, and, it, and it follows a decade or more of white mob violence against uh, Chinese immigrants and Chinese workers uh, in, in, in California. And if you think about it, it it's a very—it's it, ugly, of course, but it's also a, v- a little bit odd because the, the Chinese worker who they're vilifying as coolies—that's um, a—that's ver- a very important and particular usage. The Chinese worker is basically being accused of being hard-working of being law-abiding of being frugal and resourceful and and these are quintessentially american virtues aren't they uh, at least you know in the small r republican tradition so if you're going to try to demonize someone as a threat as a hereditary threat as a political threat and and of course as as an, as an economic threat to um anglo-saxon american workers you have to come up with something else uh, and so what they came up with, uh, the, the, the progressives, uh, activists, the economists, and, and uh, some of the labor unions, was that, um, that they, were, they had this sort of supernatural ability to subsist on nothing. Um, and, 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 and that was, in fact, linked to, to, to their race. Today, we, we might give it a cultural explanation, uh, but at the time, it was deemed a sort of an innate quality. And, and furthermore, that, that living standard, this ability to, to, to live uh, at, at, at subsistence, was not only determined by race, but it also somehow led them to accept um, unusually substandard low wages. Of course, that doesn't follow at all if you think about it. Just because you live frugally doesn't mean that you're willing to accept low wages, right? Uh, if there's any or competition that, in the market, yeah. you won't. It just means you're saving your money, so maybe you can bring some more of your family to safety or maybe start a small business. Yeah. So I, the, the actual economics of it are, are, are a little bit puzzling, and, 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 and we could talk about that if you want, but I don't want to get too far in the weeds. This is the moment where um, labor economics, which it was not yet called, that's anachronistic, still hadn't a fully adopted marginal productivity theory as, as a theory of how wages are determined. It's sort of a mishmash. There's still an idea that wages are partly determined by living standard, and if you can attach, uh, if you if you say that living standard is a function of race or indeed of gender, um, then then you're off to the races. And just to finish the thought, Russ, this this model of demonizing the Chinese as underliving—that was sort of the term of the art—that's what made them a threat—was later uh, adapted and applied to immigrants from southern and eastern Europe. And uh, the so-called defectives, people with uh, physical and mental disabilities, and and ultimately to women too, using uh, the same sort of uh, argument.
0: It's just the parallel where today where people say that we need a minimum wage because uh, people can't live on the wages they're earning. uh, That phrase always strikes me as bizarre. I mean everybody would like to earn more, and certainly many of us would like to see poor poorer people earn more. But the idea that, that that they're not living somehow because they foolishly accepted these wages and we should effectively stop this legal transaction make it illegal by a minimum wage. And then when you ask people, well, what if there are going to be people who are put out of work? First, they argue, well, they probably won't be. But if they are, well, that's why we need, say, a universal basic income or an expanded welfare state. Mm-hmm. And this this steering of you know, there's no possibility of people climbing the ladder, no possibility of people getting work experience to improve themselves, no recognition of the importance of work for human well-being and, and a sense of pride and dignity. Uh, it just, it again, I feel like a lot of what we hear today in the debate is, it's the same argument, just not quite as racist.
1: That's right. Um, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, and and, and I, I should say that this... This notion that these various inferior peoples uh, races and genders and disabled are uh, wrongfully usurping the jobs that are rightly belong to white male anglo-saxon workers has has a second component too that's where the term race suicide comes from the fear, this is, and this is where eugenics adds meat to the argument. It's not just it's unfair economic competition. The idea is that uh, the American working man will not lower his standard to the Cooley level, and will instead have fewer children. And because of that, the inferior, the the, the hereditary inferiors will outbreed their biological betters. That's that's what race suicide means. That's what Edward A. Ross. Uh, named the process. and He was a idea, sociologist, correct? Or was he, he was he a economist? sociologist yeah. and probably the most prominent public intellectual among uh, sociologists of the day. If, you, if you'd asked an American name a, a sociologist, they probably would have named Ross, a pioneer in the field. And race suicide is what President Theodore Roosevelt called the greatest problem of civilization – it's not just a bunch of academics, you know, d- discoursing on theories of wage determination. This is viewed by uh, Roosevelt and many other progressives as, as, as a profoundly important economic problem. And, um, you know, I think one of the things we might want to say, uh, Russ, um, since I see we're running out of time, is that the original progressives, and this this I hope will connect with your last point, were were deeply ambivalent about the poor. Um, it's, it's, it's really, uh, I say in the book, the great contradiction at the heart of the progressive era reform movement. I think they felt genuine compassion for, quote, the people, right? Which is to say those groups they judged worthy uh, of American citizenship and, and, and employment. Um, and, and they were offered the helping hand, the deserving poor of, of state uplift, but simultaneously they scorned uh, millions of ordinary people who happened to be disabled or belonging to a quote, inferior race or, or female. And they were offered the closed hand of exclusion. And I think that's what connects to, the, to, to today's discourse. Um, there's still, uh, I, 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 you kind of can't believe it, but if, if you haven't been living under a rock for the past few months, there is still a, a, a view uh, at large that certain classes indeed entire races uh, are not worthy of American citizenship much much less employment well 'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that because
0: I want to make it clear that although i 've been critical of progressives uh, views towards say minimum wage or other issues it 's now the case that the right in America has taken up A big chunk of the kind of progressive arguments we're making and making the same kind of arguments, just not from the left, from the right, about the need to keep America pure, uh, an implicit form of eugenic thinking without the worst pieces of it, but not really that much different in its intellectual roots.
1: That's quite right. Uh, The kind of right wing populism you're hearing from the Trump campaign is just eerily similar uh, to the arguments uh, that uh, were sketched. uh, in my book uh, of a period hundred years ago, and I, when I set out to write this book, it, it, I, it never occurred to me that these sort of ugly sentiments uh, would, would again become you know an important part of our national political discourse. But here they are again.
0: yeah, the race suicide idea is, is is really rampant among the American right today. this idea that America needs to be white or pure or um, Uh, Somehow our national destiny is going to be contaminated by uh, immigrants of certain kinds because they're not capable of becoming part of a democracy, part of the workforce, whatever it is. And again, those attitudes are all over your book, which uh, were common in the 1880s, 1890s, 1910 about immigrants, whether they were from – uh, Eastern Europe is jews chinese um, italians irish it 's just uh, or, or african americans it 's just very depressing
1: uh, oh, again go ahead and, and I, I would also say uh, Russ, something we really uh, want to avoid doing uh, in retrospect uh, looking looking backward a, a century is we, we want to make sure we don 't make the tempting mistake of condemning uh, all this eugenics and race science as pseudoscience. Um, that, that, that would be our view of it today. But at the time, it was nothing of the sort. It was the best science of the day. And, and, and progressivism is nothing if not scientific in the way it conceives of the relationship of the expert to the administrative state and the relationship of the administrative state to the economy. It's really hard to appreciate in retrospect um but these people were not cranks, uh they were not proto fascists or any such thing. Um they were the leading lights intellectually and politically of their time and they thought they had it right. They thought that they were simply taking the best science of the day and applying it to important economic and social problems. I think uh if nothing else, it it it, it should uh it should counsel uh humility uh for, for economists and, and, and others. Who do policy today?
0: Yeah, let's close with uh, going back to this Richard Eli Ely quote. Um, uh-huh. I always pronounced it Eli, but it's evidently Ely. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, so. That famine efforts in India should be suspended because, quote, let the famine continue for the sake of race improvement, close quote. Right. Um, I, I've always been proud of the role economists played in the slavery argument. Uh, in England and in the United States, so we go back to John Stuart Mill and Adam Smith and others, and we have a wonderful essay uh, here at the Library of Economics and Liberty um, by David Levy and Sandra Pert on the origins of uh, racism. It's really and 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 the slavery movement, the justifications for slavery. It ties into a recent yep. episode we had with Mike Mike bunger on this issue. But Fantastic. in some ways, Work. in some ways, I Fantastic. yeah, thanks. I, not my work, but yeah. Um, in, in some ways, it, it's sort of the predecessor of the um, of the progressive philosophy, this idea that the betters need to take care of the inferiors or at, at least keep them away if you can't help them. And I, I think about how Mill and Smith saw, had so much respect for the dignity of human beings, regardless of their race, regardless of their nationality, that, that Smith dis, was disdainful of, of people who said that, you know, the Irish couldn't take care of themselves That, or that all kinds of people deserved respect as individuals. And we went somehow from that attitude to the attitudes you talk about in the book, Richard Ely, who would say it's better to let people in India die because they're racial inferiors. How did that come to pass? Uh, I know that's a, <laughs> it's a it's a tough question to to end with uh on on one foot so to speak but uh do you have any thoughts on that it's very very sad to me
1: well i think that that there obviously is a connection to the you know earlier mid-19th century um abolitionist movement the the anti-slavery movement um and i guess uh one caution i would make is that uh i'm i'm happy to claim smith and mill as as economists uh But the the the, the idea of of an economist as as a vocation as as a job as a profession is something that really only emerges um, in the late nineteenth early twentieth century. Um, So people who uh, who wrote brilliantly about economic matters like like Smith and and like Mill, I'm happy to claim them. But you know, Mill was a, a a civil servant and and Smith was a professor of moral philosophy. And, you know, Marx was an agitator and a journalist, and uh, all the all the economists that we read uh, in a history of economic thought course uh, were not professionals until this moment. That's an important part, actually, in the United States of, of what the progressives did, is they professionalized economics. They made it academic, and they made it expert. Um, and I, I, so I, I, I wouldn't want to claim that there's some sort of... Uh, you know, incredible phase change that happens. I, I would make one one important point, though. I think, in trying to trying to to respond to the question, and 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 that's this: is that one thing about eugenics, about using the state to uh, improve human heredity, uh, is you, you can't do it without a regulatory state, really, in any meaningful way. That's not to say that today, in in, in the area of genetic testing and screening. Uh, there isn't a, a form of eugenics going on. There, there is. The difference is, though, uh, who gets to decide who's fittest? Is it, is it parents in consultation with their doctors? Or as it was 100 years ago, is it the state um, as being directed by by experts? So at least in, in, in terms of the progressive era, there's no eugenics uh, without the advent of the administrative state. Of course, there's eugenic ideas. Uh, there's, there's a few places, uh, like the Oneida community, where it's, it's being practiced. Um, but you, you, you do need, uh, if you're going to do a, a serious uh, wholesale uh, revision of, of human heredity in the name of improving it, you, you need, you need uh, a powerful state to carry that out. So actual eugenic policy as opposed to eugenic thought had to await uh, the arrival of uh, an administrative state with the power to carry it out.
0: My guest today has been Thomas Leonard. His book is Illiberal Reformers. Tim, thanks for being part of EconTalk.
1: My great pleasure, Russ. Thanks so much for having me.